Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Pyramids, the Taj Mahal, and Social Security. The date, October 2020. I'm Bell Avis. Before we begin, I just wanted to uh, again alert you to the fact that on Amazon.com, we have the conservative historian book, A Collected Works. If you like these podcasts, the conservative historian book has, oh, I don't know, about 20 times the amount of content that this does. And let me tell you about the most important aspect of that book. We rank all 45 presidents by conservative ideology. So if you want to check out that list and see how it's different from all of the other ranking of presidents, ours again by conservative ideology, please go to Amazon.com, type in Conservative Historian Collected Works, and then decide whether you want the hardcover or the Kindle version. And now, onto our podcast. In Toby Wilkinson's fascinating work, entitled The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt, the author covers all 31 ancient Egyptian dynasties. Yes, all 31 of them. Included among these is one of the most famous, the fourth that ruled from 2575 to 2450 BCE. Why was it notable? It was this dynasty that gave us the Pyramids at Giza and the Great Sphinx. And how long have these monuments been around? It helps to date a later pharaoh, that of Ramses II of Exodus fame, who ruled somewhere around 1270 BCE. The time between the 4th dynasty and Ramses' time is the same amount of time from 2020 to the time of Charlemagne, the Abbasid Caliphs, or Tang Dynasty China. In other words, a really long time span. And though we revel in the 4,500-year life of these monuments, such as the Pyramid and the Great Sphinx, the people alive at the time were probably not as pleased to gaze upon their wonder. According to Wilkinson, quote, three generations of huge investment, human, material, and administrative, in pyramid building transformed Egypt but proved an unsustainable drain on its resources, unquote. Moving into another source of modern-day tourist revenue, good for the present government, but maybe bad for the one that built it, is the Taj Mahal complex in Agra. As opposed to building a temple dedicated to himself, as the pharaohs did, Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan built the most notable structure in the complex as a dedication to his deceased wife, Mumtaj. It took 20,000 labors and 10 years to build the primary edifice and acres of lavish gardens. The issue, as historian Karthik Nambi points out in Medium.com, quote, The Taj Mahal started as a colossal project with funding from the court. As the cost swelled up, the building of the Taj Mahal swallowed the entire Mughal treasury, as a last resort, Shah Jahan started issuing trading rights to European trading companies to make money, unquote. The last part essentially began the process of ceding authority from the Mughals to European organizations, most notably the British East India Company. And another must-see on any European tour is Versailles. According to History.com, quote, Entrusting Europe's master architects, designers, and craftsmen with what he termed his glory, 
Louis XIV spent a tremendous amount of taxpayer money on Versailles, and it's more than 2,000 rooms, elaborate gardens, fountains, private zoo, Roman-style baths for frolicking with his mistresses, and novel elevators, unquote. Was Louis XIV's extravagance primary responsible for Louis XVI's death during the French Revolution? Well, Louis' two successors probably did not help matters by engaging in constant and ruinously expensive wars, but the concept of French monarchy, exemplified by Versailles, did not help. Personally, I have always had an uneasy relationship with these creations, magnificence, and the knowledge of what they did to the people who actually built them. I'm not talking about the rulers. I'm talking about those 20,000 slaves in Egypt or the 20,000 people that the Mughals made to build Shah Jahan's monument to his wife. Now, do not get me wrong. I have visited several of these UNESCO sites and love touring palaces, cathedrals, and mosques as much as the next historian. But it was not just the cost of the local population to essentially build a memorial for themselves. Contrast that with two of the first empires who would create, as 21st century American politicians would understand it, infrastructure. Nearly 2,500 years ago, Persian King Darius I began work on the Royal Road. As writer K. Chris Hurst notes, quote, The Royal Road led from the Aegean Sea all the way through Iran, a length of 1,500 miles or 2,500 kilometers. A major branch connected the cities of Susa, Kirkuk, Nineveh, Edessa, Hattusa, and Susa-Sardis. The journey from Susa to Sardis was reported to have taken 90 days on foot and three more to get to the Mediterranean coast at Ephesus. The journey would have been faster on horseback and carefully placed way stations helped speed the communications network, unquote. Originally intended to help Darius keep his far-flung provinces in line, the road became a trade center and made traveling much more comfortable. Ironically, it was the same road that eased Alexander's subsequent conquest of the Persian Empire. But almost 200 years had passed since the founding of the empire by Darius's father Cyrus and Alexander's subsequent conquest. 200 years. Having read their Herodotus, the Romans also spent considerable resources on road construction and infrastructure. In his Life in Ancient Rome, Author Nathaniel Harris notes, quote, The Roman Empire was knitted together by a network of roads, bridges, and seaways that was without equal in ancient times. Unquote. In commenting on the famous Roman roads, Harris writes, quote, Roman roads have always been famous for their durability. Unquote. It was Caesar Augustus who instituted a postal service along these roads, in giving no concession to geography, Romans built bridges of such resilience that many are still in use today. Throughout history, the invaluable asset for building a large state is a successful and efficient military. Not a shocker there. Building an enduring nation, one that exists and prospers for generations after the initial conquest, however, is commerce. And the revenue produced by that commerce to support the military, and provide a resource to pay for infrastructure, either privately or through the state. Now, the Mongols were the most potent military force between the Romans 
and Napoleon, but in just four generations, their rule was mostly overthrown or subsumed by their conquests. They could conquer and garner the fruits of those conquests, but they lacked an enduring model to create the centuries-long successes of the Achaemenids, the Han Chinese, or the Romans. The challenge in the United States today, far beyond the issues of racism, inequalities, and immigration, of which politicians are so fond of scaring their core constituency, is that of simple math. We are spending and have spent more than we have. Writing for Commentary Magazine in 2012, Jennifer Rubin noted that of the Obama 2013 budget, quote, is gargantuan in an unsustainable recipe for sucking more and more resources out of the private sector, leaving us deeper in debt than ever. Pundits across the political spectrum, and more critically, voters, expect him to align his speeches with his policy agenda and work on solving our problems. Yet he seems incapable of doing more than giving the good speech. When it comes to governance, he simply recycles the same shop-worn tax-and-spend liberal policies, unquote. And yet, Obama was a Democrat, and Republicans, thank God, are the party of fiscal responsibility, right? In Forbes magazine, commentator Chuck Jones, writing in February 2020, or before a $3 trillion COVID package was imposed, stated of Trump's budget, quote, President Obama entered office in early 2009 in the teeth of the Great Recession. Not surprisingly, the deficit exploded from $459 billion in, cal- in calendar 2008 to over $1.4 trillion in calendar 2009. As the economy recovered, the deficit shrank to a low of $442 billion in 2015, but were $585 billion his last year in office. So even without the Great Recession, it went up. Now, President Trump, on the other hand, was handed an economy that was growing. In 2017, his first year in office, the deficit grew to $666 billion. It was $984 billion last year and is projected to be over $1 trillion in 2020 at $1.02 trillion. This would be a 74% increase in just four years. And going forward, the federal deficit could escalate to $1.7 trillion in 2030. Unquote. Those days of $1 trillion deficits in the wake of a $3 trillion COVID package that was already passed and the potential of another trillion dollars of COVID spending in addition to the deficits makes what Jones is talking about almost seem like a decent thing, a manageable problem, a small deficit. For all of the political rancor, name-calling, and claims that the other party will permanently ruin America, both parties are in firm lockstep over the one issue, the one issue that history has proven will, in fact, destroy America. No money. So where is the money going? We are not a monarchy, so there is no evidence of Taj Mahal. Though please do not plant that idea in Trump's head. There are no pyramids and no Versailles. According to the U.S. government's Bureau of Economic Analysis for 2019, estimates a $7.3 trillion in total government expenditure. That's a combination of local, state, 
and federal spend, and 21.4 trillion real GDP, which is about 34%. In other words, government spending is is now at 34% of all GDP. Now this spend, or 3 trillion of it, or nearly 50% is spent on 15% of the population, and that would be the elderly. And it is not going to improve. As Lawrence Kotlikoff and Scott Burns stated in their The Coming of the Generational Storm, quote, in 2030, as 77 million baby boomers hobble into old age, walkers will outnumber strollers. There will be twice as many retirees as there are today, but only 18% more workers, unquote. One example of this spend is Social Security. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought Social Security into existence, the median age of a male in the United States was between 67 to 69. The total amount of centenarians was around 6,000. The point of Social Security was actually more about if than when. If a person lived past their 60s and was unable to work, they would be secure. Today, the median age of a male American is 79. In 1930, there were 6.7 million people above the age of 65, or about 5.4% of the total population. In 2018, that number was nearly 50 million, or 15% of the total population. And how many centenarians? It could be 600,000, or 100 times that of 1930. The problem is as identifiable as the easy fix. No 2,000 word laws or Pelosian quote, you will see it once you pass it, unquote. We can write the bill right now. Quote, all Social Security, Medicare benefits, and public pensions eligibility are 70 years of age. Unquote. That's it. One sentence. And the chances of such a law passing, giving the voting patterns of the elderly and the American people as a whole, are about as likely as space aliens coming down from the heavens and putting about $130 trillion in golden ducats into Fort Knox. What is especially infuriating is the current business class's acquiescence to stakeholder capitalism, a euphemism for more employee and government control over commerce. Businesses in the United States pay a corporate tax. It's a direct tax on their earnings. They produce a payroll tax for each employee. By hiring people, they indirectly account for all income tax. The government does not produce revenues. Let me repeat that. The government does not produce revenues. They redistribute gains. One might claim that by financing Medicare, they pay for medical services. But that money comes from taxes and is paid either into for-profit or non-profit organizations outside of the government sphere and control, at least today. And even where the government provides direct services through entities such as the Postal Service, Amtrak, or in the exception with the hospitals, the Veteran Association's hospital groups, all of these are chronic money losers, meaning that taxes again have to pay for the shortfall. Without the Postal Service, we have UPS, FedEx, and about $9 billion in extra cash. The government is not paying for itself, and the government is running up wilder and wilder deficits. 
The Persian roads and Roman aqueducts were investments paid for by current taxpayers for the future. Social Security, Medicare, and pensions is cash borrowed from future generations to pay for today's retirees. Though it is hard to compare the millennia-old pyramids or the Taj Mahal's magnificence to Medicare Social Security, the result will be the same, a bankrupted government and the permanent decline of the nation. Thank you for listening. This is Bell Avis. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. You heard my message about the conservative historian book, Collected Works. And always check out our website for more of this type of content, www.conservativehistorian.com. Thank you for listening again.